if you haven't been a fast bowler, you don't know the thrill of bowling bloody quick, you know, <laughs> where there's apprehension on the on the batsman. And I'm talking about when, you know, you're around that 155, 160, it was just a, a thrill to bowl that quick. I live for it. I, I, I just love going even in the nets and bowling quick and <laughs> making blokes jump around a bit. Welcome to a very special episode of At The G. I'm Anthony Hudson and today a rare chance to speak to a sportsman whose connection with the MCG and its crowd is probably as strong as anyone in the history of the great ground. In some ways it's hard to explain how much Dennis Keith Lilly meant to a generation of Australian sporting fans who grew up in the 70s and 80s and particularly those of us who were lucky enough to see him in full flight. But then again maybe it's not too hard to explain because Lilly the fast bowler was a sight to behold. Dark hair flowing, handlebar moustache prominent, shirt unbuttoned, allowing his gold cricket chain to dance around freely as he charged in from the southern end of the MCG to threaten batsmen in so many different ways. The love for Lily peaked on two occasions. The first, his 11 wickets at the centenary test of 1977, when he helped Australia to a history-repeating victory. Lily bowls to Nantes in the field. He's given out OBW and that's it. Australia have won by 45 runs. An exact repeat of the first ever test match. It was amazing. that You know, it, it still sends a tingle down my spine. There was a whole lot of functions beforehand, which I yep. normally hate, but there was all these guys, that, ex-players, and um, that had played Ashes were there. And you really had a feeling that all of a sudden the the room was going to part and W.G. Grace would walk through. I mean, that was the sort of the feel for me that it it had. Quite eerie. And of course, the last minutes of Boxing Day 1981, when he took on the might of the West Indies, bowling Viv Richards on the last ball of the day for a duck and leaving the crowd wanting more. Oh, it was amazing. Like... I can remember after I went upstairs, I don't know, 15 minutes later, and Bay 13, there were still five, six, 7,000 people still there. And it was just incredible. I think they were even making a noise at that stage. I think they were as mesmerised as we were in the West Indies were. Lily broke the record for test wickets the very next day and in the end would capture 355 dismissals in his 70 test match career. His 82 wickets is still easily the most of any bowler at the MCG. And the Australian cricket and Australian sports Hall of Fame legends classic bowling action is captured superbly in the magnificent statue outside the G to inspire cricket lovers of the future. 
But the Dennis Lilly story is also one of resilience and overcoming the adversity of stress fractures in his back, which threatened his career and saw him sit out of test cricket for 18 months. But he adapted and came back a different but no less effective bowler. Lilly is now 72 years of age, but still full of life and energy living in Western Australia and happy to share his cricketing journey at the MCG, which I hope you enjoy. Dennis, welcome to At The G. Thanks, mate. Um, yeah, it's a, been, it was a happy hunting ground for me. I, it wasn't the easiest uh, wicket at times to bowl on as a fast bowler, but um, I think the crowd and you know that atmosphere and everything and knowing it was the MCG, I think that spurred you on. That sort of probably probably sort of got that extra little bit out of you that you, you know on a lot of flat wickets you didn't have much left. But uh, yeah, it was it was a it was a great place to play cricket in front of a great crowd. When you were a kid growing up in Western Australia, were you a dreamer? Did you did you have dreams of playing cricket at the top level at at a place like the MCG? No, not at all. I played a lot of different sports as a kid, um, including some athletics, and I wasn't too good at most of them. Um, <laughs> but I had a bit of a dip, and I guess I knew my restrictions. I, I didn't stand out really too much at uh, anything much at school. I was, you know, probably just pretty what they call pretty handy at a lot of them. At a young age, you know, in, in primary school and sort of, I guess, in high school, I dreamed of being, you know, a 100-metre uh, world champion runner or sprinter or a 100-metre or 50-metre freestyle champion. I mean, they, they, they were the things that I was really, really sort of thinking. That's what I dreamed of. I didn't think I was never going to get there. I was, I was hopeless. But if I allowed myself a dream, that was my dream. It wasn't about playing cricket for Australia by any means. Uh-huh. And yet you were what playing district cricket by the time you were 16 and in the state team and then the Australian team not that much later. So you must have had something going for you. Yeah, look, cricket was my, my real love. And at school, I had some success without dominating by any means. I don't think I could get the, the ball on the, on the stumps most of the time. I just ran in as fast <laughs> as I could and bowled as fast as I could. So um, someone saw something. Um, I suppose I, now that I, I look at it, starting at 16 playing with the men, I just thought it was sort of what everyone did. You know, you don't think of it now. And then, then our kids came along and, you know, at 16 I thought, mm, gee, how would they be ready to <laughs> yeah. play first grade cricket? You know, like playing league football at 16, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. It was a sporting background that you had, though, wasn't it, from your grandfather and, and your mum and dad? Yeah, my grandfather was a boxing coach um, and he he was very much involved in sport. He loved footy, he loved loved cricket. I don't think he was that good at cricket, but he loved it. And But going further back on the other side of the family, my grandmother's side of the family, there was people that were involved in um, waffle, uh, football, and, and they were some of the founding members of uh, West Perth, footy club and also they were founding members of some of the cricket that was first started up around that sort of late 1800s I guess so and my mum was you know pretty handy tennis player and dad was a very very good amateur footballer and very good sportsman as well I think in the country. How would you describe yourself as a footy player then Dennis? 
I, you know, again, handy, serviceable, I think they called them when they're, you know, you're not that good, but you, you know, you get a game. And I played Ruck Rover. Yeah, I like to try and take a big scream and then run from the fullback trying to hit me, you know. Um, so I was just probably just a one to not fill the numbers, but I certainly wasn't a main man. I've heard and read the car horn story with your, your mum and dad when you were playing local <laughs> cricket. Was that for Shield selection or Australian selection, if you could just quickly tell us the story? Um, no, that was Sheffield Shield selection. So I don't know how old I was. I was probably only about 19 or 20, I think. And uh, what actually happened was I, there was a selection day coming up. I, I wasn't really, in, I didn't think I was in the picture at all, but I did say to mum and dad, who, who used to come down and, you could park around this Laugh Lane Park where we played around the ground. It was just sort of a local suburban sort of ground. So they, you know, they parked their car there regularly when they came to watch. And I said, look, you know, if there's an announcement in the team, and if I do get in, and I don't expect it to happen, but if I do, could you, you know, just blow the horn? You know, I didn't even think anything more about it. I was probably, you know, trying to get a wicket. And all of a sudden there's this dip and then, you know, a long dip. And then all of a sudden there's all the other cars around the field or around that area, the playing ground. And they, there was, you know, there's, there's, everyone started tooting their horns. So I don't know whether they knew I got in or not, or they were just tooting because dad tooted the horn. But, um, yeah, it was quite amazing. Okay, so you're selected for WA, and by my calculations, your third Shield game is at the MCG, which is where, where we're focusing this chat on. And I make it November 1969. Peter Bedford, who, of course, a Brownlow medalist, made 134 not out. Graham Watson, 150. You took one for 79 from 15 overs. Can you remember that match at all? I blitzed them, didn't I? <laughs> um, no. I don't remember it one bit uh, at all, unfortunately, but I, I do recall that both Watson and um, Bedford were very, very good players. Um, I, how good, I don't know. You know, you're a 20-year-old, just turned 20-year-old, getting picked for his state and on a tour of four matches and ones at the MCG. I guess it was all just, I mean, I just, I was probably in, you know, thinking I was in fantasy land. I, you know, I don't know. I, you know, I couldn't have bowled that well. Um, and, you know, I just, I really don't remember the game at all. Did you feel out of place at shield level early or did you did you sort of work things out reasonably quickly? No, I guess I felt a little bit out of my depth. I don't think I got many wickets on the tour. I think I may have got some back in Perth. But um, when I got my first lot of wickets, I didn't feel secure, but I thought, mm, you know, I might keep getting a game here. Um, but we had some... Excellent fast bowlers in Western Australia at that time. I, I mean, I can't name them all, but, you know, Mackenzie, Hubble, Maine, you know, Stan Wilson. Um, you know, there was just a whole lot. You know, every grade side had at least one really good fast bowler. So, you know, to, to sort of feel secure would have been just a silly dream. Um, I, I was just playing it game by game. Now, just to jump ahead while we're on, Shield, I, there is a match that I think you do remember, which was March 1976 against the Vicks, where you knocked them over for 44. You took four for 15 and then three for 38 in the second innings, but 44, David Broad made 26. So he made most of the runs for Victoria. Yeah, he actually, he batted, I mean, really, really well. I think um, I can remember it in, a bit in my mind because it was a, an arena with not much of a crowd. I just remember everything clicked and I bowled bloody quick. It was 
a game that I just remember the you know, the keeper Rod Marshall just he must have been standing thirty five meters back. It, it, it was just um, it all just happened, um, and I don't I can't remember how guys got out or anything like that. But I just know that you know we we obviously uh, bowled well, and I just do remember bowling very quick because the ball was carrying right a long way back to Rod. How much of a thrill was it? to bowl at your absolute fastest, Dennis. And we'll talk later about how you refined your action and so forth. But at your yeah. absolute fastest, how much of a thrill was that? Oh, well, that was what I lived for. This, if, you, if you haven't been a fast bowler, you don't know the thrill of bowling bloody quick, you know, <laughs> where there's apprehension on the, on the batsman. And I'm talking about when, you know, you're around that 155, 160, which in those days, um, before I busted my back in uh, with the fractures in three places, I I was bowling up around that 160, and so it, it's it's quick. It's, it's it's Tomo quick, you know. That's that's yeah. what Tomo bowled, and, and uh, it was just a, a thrill to bowl that quick. As I said, I just I lived for it. I I, I just loved going even in the nets and bowling quick and <laughs> making blokes jump around a bit. <laughs> This young kid running, wow, he was sharp. In fact, I ducked out of the way, my cap shot off, and all our players came out from the dressing room onto the balcony. Wow, we'd come from nowhere, we'd never heard about him. He played in the test match at Adelaide, and he got wickets. He swung the ball out, he could cut the ball. He was quite a bit of a tear away then, as all fast bowlers are. But from there, he went forward, learning his craft. The early memories of the great Dennis Lilly from his adversary English opener Jeff Boycott, as told to ESPN Crick Info. Boycott first coming up against Lilly in a tour match ahead of the 1970-71 Ashes series, which England won, and where Lilly would debut to play the final two tests in what turned out to be Bill Laurie's last as skipper and then Ian Chappell's first. The following year, Australia played a star-studded World Eleven side, which replaced South Africa, who were banned from international cricket. In that series, Lilly played on the MCG at the top level for the first time, running headlong into the magnificent double century from the great Gary Sobers. But that came the game after Lilly had announced himself to the world with a superb 8-for-29 in Perth. I think then I realised I could do it. And, you know, again, that was one of the times I bowled very, very fast. So, you know, the combination of bowling fast and then getting out some of the world's best batsmen, I, I sort of, I guess, that was when you sort of say, mm, you know, I've got a chance here. Um, and then going to Melbourne, I came down with a thud uh, because, you know, Sobers made that an amazing score. I, I do remember with Sobers, he tried to hook me first up and, and I don't know who the fieldsman was, but he, he went sort of backwards uh, to ca- take the catch, stumbled a bit, and then the ball lobbed over his head. Um, that was the only chance that Sobers <laughs> gave in about the next uh, two days. 254. In many people's eyes, that's perhaps the greatest innings ever played at the MCG. You're obviously in the bowling attack, but what are your thoughts on how good that innings oh. was? Oh, look, best I've ever seen, no doubt about that, that I've, I've played, you know, in the game that I've played in. Look, endearing memories, there's a couple there. And first was that when Sobers was batting, we had some slips in the gully. We had one out on the point boundary, and Sobers then cracked one in front of point a couple of times for four. 
So I got one. Then I guess like a mid-wicket on the opposite side. I don't know what you call that out there, square on the offside. And then within a, an, an ovary's punch, dissected the two. <laughs> and I mean, there was only about 50, 60, 70 metres between them. And then I had another man put in between them. And then he dissected one of those and either side of that bloke in the middle a couple of times. And I thought, mm, you know, how do you bowl to this bloke? And the second was, I bowled with the new ball. I bowled from the members in and bowled a, what I thought was a screaming Yorker. And the next thing I know, he rocked back made almost a hard volley out of it and the next thing was I threw my hand down stupidly to try and stop this rocket. As I looked behind it had already hit the the fence at the MCG and the members end. I mean it went like a rocket. I don't know what I was thinking trying to sort of stop, put my hand down to stop it. You'd actually picked up Sobers for a duck in Perth hadn't you and Ian Chappell tells the story of how Sobers had given him a message to pass on to you in the rooms after play at the MCG when you picked him up for another duck there in the first innings. I think it was something like tell that Lily that I can bowl those bouncer things too or whatever it was. So when I came in to bat <laughs> as soon as I came in he was captain of course and he, he just grabbed the ball. And um, in he came and just bowled these couple of lovely little in-swingers to me. And uh, the next thing was one that just really was so much quicker without any apparent change in his action and uh, just screamed straight past my uh, right ear. And there were no helmets in those days. Um, I don't know how much longer I lasted after that. Probably not long. (laughs) But he did yeah. stop mid mid wicket when he's followed through and and said there you are, I told you I could or you know you've been told I could or something like that so yeah, yeah it was it was good good manter well you took eight wickets for the match twenty four in the series so um, it, obviously you'd arrived as an international cricketer Ian Chapel I mentioned he was your first Australian captain tell us about mm-hmm. Ian as a batsman and as a captain and why he's loved so much by all you guys who played under him in the seventies. Well, what, with Ian, what you see is what you get. Um, always has been and always will be. Um, he was a born leader of men. Uh, he didn't interfere too much with, you know, he let the game roll on a bit just with a few sort of um, changes whenever it was needed and spoke to the bowlers a lot about what field they'd like. Um, he he wasn't, didn't remonstrate at all with, you know, sort of if you'd done something wrong or anything, nothing like that ever happened. He, he, he just, uh, he had it all under control. Bat, in batting, if I had anyone to, I wanted to bat for my life. Um, in any situation, so any situation, one for none or, you know, whatever, against any attack, any attack, in and as I say, any conditions, uh, I would pick him to bat for my life. Just the grit in the man, the determination, the will to win uh, was quite amazing. Do you think, is he one of the main reasons why that era is loved so much? And look, I mean, you are clearly one of the reasons because we all love cheering for you. But do you think it was led by Chapelli? Oh, obviously it was. And, and, you know, on top of all that I said before, you know, he was a bloody good captain. <laughs> Very yeah. good. The best I ever played under. We It went from when he became captain, all of a sudden it became a relaxed atmosphere. You know, there was no suit and ties. It was sort of relaxed. It was more, more. I think why the general public liked him and the team was that we probably dressed and talked a lot like the man in the street. Um, yeah. 
And that wasn't always the case with cricket and cricketers. So it was a change with the times, I guess. Your first test at the MCG was 72-73 against Pakistan. Redpath and Greg Chappell scored centuries. John Benno and Paul Sheen in the second innings. Uh, there was a lot of runs. Uh, Sadiq Mohammed and Majid Khan made hundreds. So it was a very high-scoring game. Was that the match when you first felt the, the pain in your back? No, I think it was uh, SCG. So it might have been the game after. I mean, I always had a sore-ish back. And, and I suppose most fast, fast bowlers did, but it hadn't stopped me, and, but it, it stopped me in Sydney. So I, that may have been the game after, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I had, you know, I had, uh, I struggled with, with the back even when I was a young lad. So yeah, it, there was always, with my action the way it was in those days, there was always some sort of pain. Yeah, action. When I look back on the vision of, of, and you talked about just coming in and bowling fast, it was a bit wild and woolly compared to how it ended up being refined. So, can you take us through the evolution of your action and how you, how you went from from where it was to what you ended up with? Well, I believe we all have a natural action. You know, I don't, I don't think you should sort of copy anyone. So, mine mine was just something that just you know just developed from probably you know the age of seven or eight or whenever we started sort of playing in the backyard. So to bowl fast in those days, you thought you had to run in a long distance and had to run in fast and um, stretch out and and um, and pull, you know pull through, um, get around as far as you can and let her go, you know. And so that's how it developed into that pretty average action. I mean, it was fast, but then again, a lot of guys that break down do, you know, they've bowled fast, but they don't last long because they haven't adjusted um, their action to take that pressure off. And then, I think I missed 18 months or more out of the game, um, I was told I'd never bowl again. I had three stress fractures at level three and four, I think it was. And they were badly fractured because I'd kept trying to bowl with them in the West Indies. They were jabbing me with horse needles and uh, just say, you know, there's nothing wrong with you get out there and bowl. Because when you've got these stress fractures, you can actually walk around okay. You can even jog a bit um, at times, depending on how far it's gone. So for all intents and purposes, it looks like you're pulling the wool. And I was told I was, too, in the West Indies um, by a certain manager. Um, I think he wanted to send me home, and Ian Chappell said, no, this guy will work hard. And you know, we didn't know there were fractures, obviously, so we didn't know that, but he just said, no, he's staying. So I worked and tried and tried and tried, you know, rest and then jabs and tried to play. So that was a very dark period, a very dark period in my cricketing career. Was it dark from a mental point of view? Like, did you really have to battle through mentally? No, no, no. Just dark because, I, you know, I couldn't see how I'd get right. You know, as I say, no, no, not knowing there were fractures, you just thought you've got torn muscles or stretched muscles, strained muscles or whatever. You know, like, no one knew. So that was the, the strain for me, was not knowing but, but still trying. I never gave up. We used to do these isometric exercises. Was, uh, Dr. Frank Pike got him onto all of that. You know, if there was no wall or, or door frame around, if you're outside, you had to hold somebody, you know, in that uh, isometric position so they couldn't move. Mm. Well, you'd hold Dennis after he'd come back and done all his work 
because he had to build up his back muscles and everything. You know, he was just incredible. The voice of Dennis's West Australian and later Australian teammate, fellow fast bowler Terry Alderman, who witnessed firsthand Lily's legendary work ethic as he rehabilitated himself under the guidance of Frank Pike in Perth. It would be 18 months before Lily returned to the top level, but it was in time to partner up with another fearsome fast bowler, Jeff Thompson, to intimidate an England lineup that was soon battered and bruised in the 1974-75 Ashes series, which Australia won 4-1. I had to remind me, I come back, do a lot of work on my trunk and get super fit and strong um, and flexible. So I did ease my way in a fair bit. I had to remodel my action. Um, I'd lost a bit of pace, but I still had one good one up the sleeve every now and again. So, uh, yeah, while time I just bowled every ball quick and bloody quick and <laughs> scary, um, I, I guess at the other end, you know, I had one up my sleeve, but I, I probably bowled a fuller length and uh, did a little bit more with the ball. So we probably complemented each other pretty well. Had you worked that out during the, your absence that you were going to have to bowl like that and rather than just blast every ball? No, I, I hadn't realised that would be the case because it's a bit hard when you see the end result of, of all that work and, and then the first you know, test, you probably see something that's you know 90% of what it's going to be, whereas that was a gradual thing through grade cricket, through shield cricket, and easing my way in. And I was really bowling probably only three-quarter pace most of that time. And then when I got to the test matches, that I thought it was, you know, it's basically now or ever. It's against the, I think it was against the Poms. You know, there's no half measures. And if I'm going to break down, I'm going to break down. It was, and I, I was taking lots of painkillers at the time, lots of painkillers to get wow. through. Was that the time, do you think, where you, in combination with Tom Owen, he, he, he's always colourful with his descriptions of things, but uh, was that the time when you probably saw the most fear in batsmen's eyes, collectively with you two operating together, do you think? Yeah, I used to often sort of go into short leg regularly when Tom Owen was bowling, because um, I just like to see that sort of fear in some of the batsmen's eyes and uh, know that uh, they were very uncomfortable facing him. Um, and, you know, I, I guess it was just, and you, you're a presence there, you know, you're saying if, if he doesn't get you, you know, I'm resting here, I'm going to come from the other end, you know, that's without saying it. Um, that's what you were saying. So it's really, a, it's a mental mental game as well as a physical game, and, and uh, I did know how to play the mental game too. I was going to ask you later, what was the best combination of, of opening the bowling? Do you think it was you and Tomo in, in that era? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, you know, with Terry, it was Terry Alderman. was fantastic yeah. as well. But, um, you know, it was just exciting. You know, you, I don't want to sound like a big, big head because, you know, I, I'm not. But you did feel you could win every match with Tom Owen, you know, Max Walker and, you know, all those guys. Actually, yeah. I mean, Bruce Yardley later. I mean, you just, you felt so confident. <laughs> it's not just the bowling. We had a great batting size. You know, we always made 300 plus uh, and in quick time. Our slips cord, and if you look at some of the old footage there, you know, there's six, seven blokes in the slips, and they could all catch. <laughs> there was hardly a man in front of uh, cover. You often didn't have a mid-on, uh, for example. So I remember one game in New Zealand, there was, there was, everyone was either the wicket keeper or the slips, and, and there was no one in front of the, wicket, in front of the slips at all. The blokes used to joke, because I always wanted that many blokes sort of in the slips can 
gully and short leg and, you know, often two-inch short leg and all that sort of stuff. And when I was captain coach of Melbourne and, and Perth Cricket Club for many years, I used to set these massively aggressive fields. And, of course, in the end, because I was playing my last lot of uh, games at Melville Cricket Club, all the boys in the team, uh, WA team and the Australian team, said, oh, no, here we go again. He's going to set the Melville fields. <laughs> <laughs> so it was quite a joke. Um, uh... But, yeah, look, confident times, I guess. As I said, everyone could catch. Um, we batted beautifully. Uh, our top order was, you know, always going to get a lot of runs. Um, and, you know, you, you thought if you're bowling, you always reckon you might be able to bowl the opposition out, even the West Indies in those times for, you know, 250, 260, 270, um, having known you'd made three or 400, you know, in quick time. One last one on Tomo. What were you like as people? Like how similar or different were you as people? Uh, well, I think we were very different, um, but we got on really well. We roomed together most of the time. Um, right. And it was, it was interesting because I didn't never like to go to bed before 10 o'clock at night Tom, I was often in bed by sort of eight thirty, nine o'clock. Um, wow. But he'd be up, he'd be up at five or six, and I wanted to sleep in. So we had this arrangement that I didn't make a noise at all when I came in. So you know, you always we had rooms, uh, single beds with you know in one room. So you roomed what they call roomed together in those days. Yeah. And so you, I crept in sort of at you know quarter ten, ten ish. And, you know, quietly um, got to bed and to sleep. And the next morning, I never, ever knew that Tomo had left the room. He was so quiet. And he'd go and wander around London or Melbourne or Sydney and uh, come back and uh, wake me up at about 8 o'clock and say, yeah, breakfast's on the way. Um, So we we were the odd couple, but it really worked. It certainly did, and you were bowling again the following year, 75, 76. So the West Indies were emerging. You bowled Viv for 41. He was batting at five then. Even though you thrashed the West Indies 5-1, did you feel that even then, that there was real talent there and you were going to have a rivalry that would, would continue for a while? Not really. Viv hadn't emerged at that stage, really, um, and they're he was struggling a bit. He had to be, I think he had to be hypnotised um, at one stage in the tour, on the tour. So he was struggling. You know, they had a very good batting lineup: Fredericks, um, Greenwich. Then there was Lloyd, who reinvented himself at number six, I think it was. Um, and there was a couple of others. Their batting was terrific. But they hadn't quite emerged um, as the bowling side they were going to be. Um, so I think they had a couple of good quicks in, in, in Andy Robertson holding. You know, the, the backup wasn't so good. And I think it was once they got, got those other couple of quicks and they, they retained that fantastic batting lineup, that's when they really, we thought they'd emerge. So it was really the next tour. Now, the following year, the summer of 76 77, before the centenary test took place in March, Pakistan toured and you took 10 wickets in the test at the G. Kim Hughes tells a rather animated story of how you intimidated the tourists, which really got the crowd fired up. Is, is that how you remember it? I do remember parts of the game. I do, I do remember the crowd being you know, really behind us. I think the Pakistanis weren't too keen on the, on the uh, quicker, shorter balls um, those <laughs> days. Uh, they emerged since then, but yeah, they didn't handle it that well. I do remember that if you bowl pretty quick and bowl, you know, fairly well, you you would get wickets soon. Um, yeah, and, and you know, it's probably I was probably at, at a peak in my career or close to it at that stage too.
which probably makes what was about to come all the more significant because it was about this time that player disgruntlement with pay and conditions was building, wasn't it? And it was actually you that came up with the original idea that would eventually become World Series cricket. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it started with an idea that was put to my manager at the time, John Cornell, who then put it to Packer. Um, and that's the embryo of it was how it started. It, it didn't end up like that. Um, the original idea was just a one-off, one game, one day uh, at the MCG, big crowd, big payday for us. Then we'll play for Australia, normally for peanuts as we were before. Yeah. So that was the embryo. That was that was the idea. And I knew I could sign all the blokes. We get all the blokes to go because they were all absolutely over um, playing for peanuts. Given what was taking place behind the scenes, it's quite incredible that the centenary test in recognition of 100 years of the game would turn out to be the celebration and epic match that it became. Dennis Lilly would play a starring role, but even he was overwhelmed by the atmosphere created before and around the game by the presence of so many legends of the past. It was amazing. that You know, it, it still sends a tingle down my spine. There was a whole lot of functions beforehand, which I yep. normally hate, but there was all these guys that you know came uh, from over from England or all, any that were alive that played test cricket. Now, you know, all these people were my heroes. I'd read about them. And I do tell a story at one of the functions, you know, all of these ex-players and, and, the, and the current ones that were going to play in the game um, that had played Ashes were there. And you really had a feeling that all of a sudden the, ro- the room was going to part and W.G. Grace would walk through. I mean, that was the sort of the feel for me that it, that it had, quite eerie. Um, and then the event itself, once we got down to the game and everything, you know, as, as it turned out, it was just a, an incredible game that ended the same as it did 100 years before, which is just freakish. That game produced so many fond memories for people who attended. And certainly for me, I was six, and it was actually the first time I went to a test match, day two when you took the 6 for 26, it was. And I remember it so well, being part of the Lily Lily Chan. It was just great. What was it like to be out there in the middle? Well, firstly, what a game to start your, um, <laughs> your watching career. Um, yeah. <laughs> you started at the top, I think, for a oh, game. No. Um, the experience of the crowds, that's where I loved, why I loved playing at the MCG. The wicket, uh, you know, as I said, you quoted some of the games where there's, you know, guys made hundreds and big scores and all that sort of stuff. Now, in those days, like the Oval in England in those days, the MCG was really called a bit of a graveyard for fast bowlers. Um, so that was the reputation. Although some guys bowl really well there and got lots of wickets, it, it was generally considered a wicket that you could get runs on if you played well. The crowd... The crowd had a bigger influence than a lot of people like to think. I had such a good in- interaction with the crowd, and I, f- I fielded right down the boundary, so I was always chatting with them and, and sometimes missed, missed some uh, <laughs> some balls that hit my way. But um, you know, I had that great interaction with them, but the thing that I found was that when you're running into bowl, going, walking back to bowl and they're chanting and, and, and you know that you're about to run into bowl, it certainly did lift you. There's no doubt about it. It made, made you want to, to get wickets for yourself and for them 
because they were willing you on. And you can't underestimate, you know, what that can do to someone um, playing, you know, top cricket. And, and conversely, it must have an effect on the batsman. I mean, your concentration does take over as soon as you sort of rain the ball. And I guess as soon as the batsman starts to concentrate, then the noise, the sound probably just dissipates. But by and large, that willing you on does actually uh, get to you and it does have an effect. Speaking with Kerry O'Keefe, I chatted to him about the centenary test and he was yeah, he was just saying how much it helped you. You know, he really said that the crowd loved just loved being with Dennis and Dennis loved the crowd being with, with him. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think it, it it was a it, it, I've got to tell you a story against it though. When I played shield cricket there I got booed all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I could never work that out. <laughs> Uh, we're we're fairly, fairly parochial, as I'm, I'm sure you're aware here, as you blokes are over in WA. Yeah. Um, did, did Derek Randall get under your skin, or did you did you sort of ad- begrudgingly admire his cheekiness? No, he got under my skin. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't go him much at all. Um, I he was, he was um, a bit obnoxious uh, for a you know, a bloke that was, you know, not a great player, uh, a bit of an unknown, um, a bit cheeky, a bit, um, well, I, I thought he was a bit, bit um, I don't know, um, loose-minded at times, but, um, you know, he, he was a good bloke. Um, uh, he just, yeah, he got under my skin. He probably thought the same about me. But he played, obviously played a magnificent innings and, and very nearly yeah. got, got them over the line, didn't he? Yeah, he played it. He played bloody well. Um, you know, I, I guess the only thing is, and you know, he did have a few chances, and and you know, anyone who plays a long innings probably does. But he had a belief that he could do it, and he very, very nearly did. I, I just remember it. I think it was when he got man of the match at the end. There, and they asked him to say a few words, and he said, "Firstly, I'd like to thank uh, Mr. Lilly for the bump on me head." <laughs> um, and that's just the sort of you know nothing about, about his batting, but you know he's got he had that wicked sense of humour. Oh yes, he was certainly a character. A couple of stories about the the centenary test. Now Rod Marsh told us how you and he went and played footy with some of the Richmond guys on the rest day, and he he was ninety five, not out, and he sort of his hamstring was sore when he woke up the next morning. Do you remember doing that? <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, yeah, it was Bacchus and I, because we, we sort of knew a few of the guys at Richmond um, well, and, uh, you know, including Sheeds and a few others. Um, and so we were asked if we'd go down there. I think it must have been a promo for the club. I, I don't know, but, um, right. you know, it was all over the newspapers and we were kicking the ball everywhere. And, uh, yeah, it was a bit stupid, really, when you think about it. Jeez. <laughs> but... Um, you know, it was amateur days, basically, you know, you, you, were, you weren't uh, thinking um, about your career or, or, you know, what was going to happen the next day. You just had a bit of fun. And speaking of fun, meeting the Queen, which was part of the highlight, part of the pageantry, I suppose, of the centenary test. And at one stage, it didn't look like it was going to make it to, to tea on that final day, but it certainly did. And you famously asked for an autograph. Were, were you genuine and, and hoping you'd, you'd get one or was just being a bit cheeky? Oh I, no, I I wondered. I mean, I I was a big believer in the monarchy and all that sort of stuff. Um, and you know, I I just thought it'd be nice to get her um, her autograph, but it was was not to be on that occasion because you know you can imagine if she signed it for me, well then you know everywhere she went, she you know blokes people would be poking her 
pen in front of her and say, sign this. So I understood that. But I, I end up getting a photo of it happening sent to me, signed by her later on. Um, and that takes pride of place in the house. There's not too many cricket photos in the house, but there's one of her and me. Wow. I was going to ask you if you still if you still got the photo, but you still have. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's fantastic. Now, I mentioned Rodney it's Marsh. It's really, but... <laughs> yeah, mm. but it's fantastic. I mentioned Rod Marsh. Was there just an affinity between you two? The court marsh bowl lily, it was just a thing. It was a phrase used all the time in backyards around Australia, although the mm. wicketkeeper might have been automatic uh, when we were all putting a, a headband on and coming in and bowling like you. But... Um, <laughs> What what was that connection like? When we played against each other in club cricket, I couldn't stand him, you know, because he was a massive hitter of the ball. He used to put me out of the park and, you know, hook me everywhere and cut me everywhere. And so, you know, I I, I thought this big fat buff, you know, why can't I get him out? Um, so we didn't sort of get on then, but that, you know, I was probably only 16 or 17. He was only a couple of years or a year and a half old more than me so we were sort of young kids just you know playing the game when we got into shield cricket I think you know we weren't the best of mates uh, I didn't drink uh, and he he enjoyed a cold one or two or three um, <laughs> and so I wasn't part of that that clan that no it wasn't a clan everyone everyone had a few drinks in those days it was just the culture um, and so I didn't I drank full strength coca-cola um, and, uh, you know, I was considered a bit of an outsider and, and I guess I can see Rod's point of view. I mean, he once said to me, you know, I don't trust you. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, my dad, my old man said, don't trust anyone who doesn't drink. I said, oh, okay, fair enough. Um, but you know, it evolved obviously from there. Um, and we've become, you know, the best mates and, and, you know, he's probably one of my best mates and we is, and, uh, just it's very, very close, you know, and we, we ring each other regularly. Whenever he bowled, you knew one thing, that he, he was always giving it everything he had. He never left anything in the tank. And was that just his nature? Yep, yep. Still is, still is. Even to this day, whatever he does, you know, you know damn well he's not messing around. He's doing it properly. I asked him about your nature on the, on the ground, and he just said you were just a, the ultimate competitor. He said he still is these days. Whatever you play or do anything against Dennis, he's just the ultimate competitor. Is that is that fair comment? Well, coming from him, it is. <laughs> I mean, there's no one's more competitive than him. Um, right. So, yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree with that. Um, I I just hated losing, um, even 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 playing marbles or um, Monopoly. No one ever ever wanted to play Monopoly with me. Um, yeah, I, I just, I, I don't know why, it was just in me. I just, I didn't like losing. I don't think I was a bad sport as such, although I could have been very close to it at times, but I just couldn't, I, I just, yeah, I didn't like it. I don't know why. <laughs> no, that's, it, it had its advantages, obviously, on the on the field, didn't it? Yeah. One other thing Rod said was that, that you were a, a better bowler against right-handers than you were against left-handers. And I, I bring that up, I'm just moving ahead to 1980 when a match at the third test against England. You picked up David Gower for a duck. You actually got him nine times, which was equal second most of, um, of the batsmen that you just dismissed in your career. So did, do you agree with Rod that you were better to right-handers than left-handers? It's because, of, I imagine, because of the way you naturally moved the ball? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And look, I didn't... Most people that bowl now have an off cutter or one that angles away from the lefty. Um, I didn't 
I guess I didn't even try to. You know, I just thought if you bowl to a lefty, um, not a bad way to get him out is clean bold, you know, whereas a bit silly and naive, really, because when you bowl to a right-hander, you do it the opposite. You don't try and bowl him out. You actually generally try to get him LEW or caught in that slip, slips gully cordon. So because I didn't bowl a, a good one away from a, a lefty, I learned to use the angles later and became a bit better. But no, he's dead right. So boycott was another that you dismissed in that match and both of them. So a couple of very different characters there from the, from the Poms. What, what are your memories of bowling and playing against those two? Well, both of them was the ultimate uh, competitor. The thing about him was you had to worry about him because he'd bowl a whole lot of rubbish often to start with and he'd have none for 40 or 50 or something. And, and that's when he was dangerous. And then he'd you know, often end up with a four for a five. You know, he didn't give in and, and he just kept bowling and bowling and bouncing in and bowling and, bowling and trying everything. You know, Hines he was, you know, the 57 varieties. He, uh, he tried it all. And uh, he certainly was a golden arm, you know, because he would get one caught in the covers first up and then all of a sudden, you know, up came his confidence and then he'd bowl a great ball and get one out caught. You know you know what I mean? Um, he, yep. was, he was sort of a, a bloke that knew how to lift. And uh, Boyks was, uh, well, Boyks was Jeffrey Boycott, you know. I don't think you need to say too much more about Jeffrey. Um, <laughs> unless you enjoyed you're getting him out, I'm um, sure. I did, and I look. I've got to tell you one that I really remember because it was at the MCG, and and um, I'm bowling to Jeffrey, and it might have been that that game you're talking about. And um, Jeff loved to leave the ball; he loved to wear you down. And so I'd played against him a few times, and I I knew the way he operated. Um, and so I bowled the first over was you know I don't know let's say six seven inches outside off stump going away. Uh, a bit further, you know, outside of and then coming back into that six, seven inches. And uh, and uh, the whole over was like that, but I can remember. And that was the way I was, what I wanted to do. And then the next over to him, I bowled three the same and he's shouldering arms and, you know, sort of almost showing showing off to the crowd and everything. And the fourth one, he shouldered arms and it clean bowled him because it nipped back. Um, and you should have seen the look on his face. That that was priceless. I wish I'd had a photo of that um, because I, I reckon Boyks, Boyks would have had nightmares over that, and I hope he did. And it's Nick that he's got him. Great bowling by Dennis Lilly. Some pains going for the big drive and magnificently caught by Alan Border. It's him on the pad. It must be close. He's given him out. He's gone. Out the LBW. Lilly's got another one. Well, the Australians are alive. What a crowd and what a performance. The exploits of DK Lilly in the last minutes of play on Boxing Day 1981 against the West Indies is the stuff of legend. As we remembered so fondly in a previous episode, Kim Hughes produced one of the most courageous unbeaten hundreds of all time on a difficult pitch against a fearsome Windies pace attack as Australia limped to 198 all out. And as the shadows lengthened, Lily and Terry Alderman unexpectedly removed openers Desmond Haynes and fouled Bacchus, and then night watchman Colin Croft to lead the tourists at 3 for 10, as the great Viv Richards made his way out for the last three balls of the day. The first two were short pitch balls from Lily, which Richards tried to hook and miss, which had the crowd at fever pitch. Viv loved to hook, and uh, I'd worked out early on that he... 
very proud man and would never, you know, duck or unless he really had to. Rarely saw him duck, and so he'd take you on. Um, and and I I like that. That's that gives you a bit of an advantage rather than bowling his boycott. He didn't really try to score runs. So I figured that he'd be on the back foot waiting for it. And what happened was the one that I then pitched up very full just outside off stump. Lily in to bowl the last ball of the day. He's bowled him! He's bowled him! The last ball of the day. Lily getting one to the back, finding the inside edge and bowling out for Richards. Well, what a magnificent start for Australia. The West Indies four down for ten and the crowd absolutely ecstatic. Well, the great man doing it on the last ball of the day, getting rid of the real West Indian danger man. Because he was, so he was probably a bit on the back foot and then trying to shift his weight forward, uh, he only got it part there and he got an inside edge and on. You know, people said I clean bowled him um, and I'm happy to claim claim that, but I didn't <laughs> really. Um, but, but it's a wicket all the same. And you charged off the field. What was yeah. the moment like? Did you realise how big that moment was? Because the adrenaline must have been pumping. The crowd stayed and chanted. Yeah. Oh, it was amazing. Like, you know, I can remember so I was doing a column at the time and I went upstairs, I don't know, 15 minutes later and Bay 13, there were still five, six, seven thousand 7,000 people still there. And it was just incredible. I think they were even making a noise at that stage. So I used to sit up so upstairs and do the column and, uh, yeah, I can remember that, uh, the crowd that was just, I think they were as mesmerised as we were and the West Indies were. Was that the biggest moment at the G for you, do you think? Mm, yeah, I think Centenary Test winning that, you know, and, you know, fought hard to win that. They looked like winning and, you know, we just kept going. I, I think that, and I think I got 11 wickets or something as well, which, you know, sort of mostly hard fought yep. wickets. Um, so, you know, I, yeah, I think both of them probably, but, yeah, it's hard to separate them. Uh, the, the next day you broke the record, so that was that was the other element, wasn't it, of, of that match? They sort of recovered a bit, but you picked up. So it was a left-hander. You picked up Larry Gomes, caught by Greg Chappell. So uh, breaking Lance Gibbs' yeah. record. That was that was pretty big, wasn't it? Well, it was. And Lance had come out for the game before, and he couldn't. I didn't get a wicket, <laughs> so he couldn't wait any longer. He had to go home. Um, and so then, then when he'd gone, it happened. Um, but. The the interesting thing with that was that Gomes, I think for, he was only about four or five or moving less, and I'd bowled one across him that went to Greg Chappell, the safest hands you'll ever, ever see, and it was a simple catch, and he dropped it. And then he went on to make 70-odd, and they obviously made a bit of a recovery. Um, but it was exactly the same ball that I got him out on, exactly the same one to Greg again, and this time he snapped it up. So it was like an instant replay, but yeah. later on. Drake Chappell's got it. That is the record. The wicket-taking test match record. Larry Gomes put Drake Chappell. Paul Dennis Lilly to give Lilly 310 wickets in test match cricket. What a great performance from a great fastballer. And how did that feel to be the best wicket-taker in the history of cricket? I think it was a relief. Um, I mean, it it was terrific to do it but it was a relief also because of the fact you know when you play a test and you most tests you at least get a few wickets um in your career and then you have one where you don't get it and you think gee this is not going to ever happen um and i think i saw um 
Nathan Lyon go through that um, as well. Mm. And then when, once he got a wicket, he was fine. So it's a relief in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's an, it's a funny feeling. You, it's one of, you don't believe you deserve it. And, you know, the guys that went ahead of you, you know, were amazing bowlers. And, you know, it, it sort of seems a bit unreal, I suppose. Your last ever test match was at, at the MCG. I know you played one after at the SCG, but it was 83 against Pakistan, Graham. Yellett made 268. You took five wickets. D- did you know at that stage that you, your test career was just about to come to an end and were you kind of soaking it all in or, or were you not sure at that stage? Yeah, my knee was playing up a lot by then. Right. Um, I was getting through, but, but it, it and look, it was I was okay. It, you know, it wasn't, it, it was controllable, but... I'd also, I got to the stage where I was sick of the press sort of waiting, when's he going to retire, when, you know, he's finished, he didn't bowl that well this time. Um, you know, all that sort of stuff, yep. uh, it just just sort of got to me, and I think in the end it was a relief. Um, you know, this is sort of, I suppose, bragging a bit, but what I liked about when I finished was that Ricky Benno said, this is the best he's ever seen me bowl. Um, and... You know, he didn't. No one ex- expected that I was going to finish. So, I, I guess I finished on a, you know, what you'd call a high um, note, which was is something you, you know, you always hope to do. Yeah. The the chain and the moustache and the shirt unbuttoned. Do you think that helped capture the imagination of of the public? I don't know. Like Richie used to have his shirt unbuttoned <laughs> down to his navel. You know, I just think that was what. What you did, it wasn't for any other reason probably to get the air through. You know, you had these long trousers on and long sleeve shirts and, you know, it was bloody hot out there. Um, but the chain came in through a chance meeting with a jeweller in uh, Melbourne, actually, and uh, during World Series cricket. He gave me this little gold bat and he said, you know, it's a present for me. I'm a jeweller, da-da-da. And, and I asked him if he could have put a little nib on it and make a chain. I said, I fancy wearing that. And um, so that's how it sort of all started. I mean, it was a chance thing. I'd never ever thought of it. And then everyone started wearing them, you know. Um, the West Indies ordered hundreds of them and uh, <laughs> it exploded. But, uh, yeah, it was just by, it was by chance, really. So I don't know what effect it might have had, but it wasn't intentional. Did you come to terms then with how big you were? And, and I guess in, in post-career, how did you sort of deal with Dennis Lilly, the superstar, versus Dennis Lilly, the normal person? I, look, I was happy to finish. I'd, I'd really had enough, particularly of the press. Um, and, you know, um, people were crowding a bit, you know, it was sort of getting a bit hard on your family and family life and, and doing things, you know. Um, yep. And, you know, that's that's only in a small way in Australia. Imagine what it's like with these other people that are, you know, film stars and that. I, I can't imagine it. But I was at the end of it. Um, and I think mentally more than anything else um but yeah it, it, it was um i didn't want to see a cricket field for i think three or four years uh, and i went and did a lot of family things i hadn't been able to do for a long time and lots of things together go around australia you know in, in a four-wheel drive with a family and it was just all stuff that that was stuff that i couldn't do before Dennis Lilly's exploits and connection with the MCG were formally recognised by the MCC in 2006 with the unveiling of a magnificent statue of Lilly. 
captured in that magical side-on pose, appearing to be leaping in the air, right arm bent back and ball behind his right ear, ready to unleash. Well, that was an amazing thrill. I mean, I must admit that I, I just never expected it. And, and it, when I saw it and it was like, this is not happening. Um, but I've got to tell you a story against uh, me on, on this. Was, um, Derek Underwood was out at the time in Australia when they did the presentation and everything. They did a lunch and they asked him to talk. Derek said, yes, yeah, fantastic. He said, but I've got to tell you, at the moment, just as we're speaking, there's 10,000 pigeons being uh, let out from Trafalgar Square to come out here and shit all over it. <laughs> I don't know if you can use that, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think we'll let it go, yes. Mate, I, I, yeah, it's, 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 it's a great feeling. And, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's one of those things where it's just an honour and it's a great recognition. Does it feel real? Does it feel? Do you remember the career and the thrill of the crowd? And does that feel just like yesterday in some ways? Uh, no, it, it doesn't feel real. Um, I grappled. That was one thing I did grapple with a lot. I didn't feel that I was anywhere near as good as what people thought I was, and and I I did grapple with that a lot. And so, uh, yeah, the adulation sort of wasn't wasn't my speed and wasn't what I wanted and I I, I just I shunned it a lot and and yeah I, I was very happy to um, be out of that side of it I must admit um, it's it's lovely every now, every now and again though when people sort of say something and say oh you know what you like you said there and all that I mean that's really terrific um, but it's not something I hang on to it's not something I, I really think much back over really and do you still flick sweat off your brow on that angle like you used to? <laughs> Funny enough, it's it, I do. Um, you know, if I'm walking, I go for walks and used to run uh, all the time um, around the river and stuff. And, and when I do and it's hot, first thing I do is I put that index finger up and I just, on the angle, flick it straight and then flick at the end of it. And I just think, oh, what do you do that for? But that was just <laughs> something you did, that, you know, because I sweated a lot. I had to get rid of it, and you know, you, you don't carry um, handkerchiefs or anything like that out in the field, so that, that was that was the easiest way to do it. <laughs> and I Blood, still sweat, do it. and tears for your country, Dennis, and uh, you've given us so much of your time today, and really appreciate it. Some great memories, your connection with the MCG, and all the members and cricket fans will appreciate it. So, thanks very much for joining us at the G. Anthony, thank you, and uh, thank all those uh, those people that came along and supported. Um, you know, they they were. Um, a great if if they thought I was an inspiration I'll tell you what they're an inspiration to us too and, and I, I remember fondly the, the lift they gave me The one and only Dennis Lilly who's taken more test wickets at the MCG than any other bowler and for many members has provided more golden memories than any other sportsman at the ground a big thank you to Dennis for being so generous with his time. Thanks also to Cricket Australia for access to audio of the action. And of course, thank you for listening. If this is the first time you've heard our podcast, make sure you check out our back catalogue and relive some of the greatest moments at the ground from not only cricket, but football, Commonwealth Games and Olympics. Enjoy the rest of the cricket season and we hope to see you soon at the G's.